Good afternoon, Spark. It's good to be together and continue to be with one another even as we are physically distanced, but to continue to be bound together through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, we are grateful again and again to find um, community and hope in one another's presence as we um, continue to navigate challenging times. So thank you for being here, and thank you to everybody who continues to contribute to Spark as a church community um, in the area, as well as um, contributing specifically to our service today. Thank you to my sisters and, and brothers who've participated. Our reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, verses 27 through 20, 39, and we're going to continue our study on Jesus according to the Gospel of Luke. Here begins our reading. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house, and there was a huge, a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. Otherwise, the new will be torn and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new wine, but says the old is good. There's the end of our reading. Our title this afternoon for our message is Jesus and Wineskins. So let's start to unpack this passage a little bit. First, we want to ask the question, who are the Pharisees? The word Pharisee is not a word, a term that shows up in our Hebrew scriptures and our Old Testament, but instead only shows up in our New Testament. Um, it is a new-ish new sect of Judaism around the time of Jesus, about 100 years prior, um, starts to arise, um, continued different groups of Judaism um, in Jesus' day and in just before, in the Second Temple period. And these different groups found various ways in their discussions and debate of practice, how should we live out um, our practice of Judaism in our day. So the Pharisees are... One of those sects of Judaism, like the Essenes or the Sadducees and others, um, their theology is actually very similar to the theology of Jesus. Um, they believe in the inspiration, um, the like word of God being for the entire Hebrew Bible, or the Tanakh, as it is called by um, the Jews of Jesus' day, as well as today, um, that for Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, for the law and the prophets, and the writings, um, and so they believed in all of that, whereas the Sadducees only believed in like the first five books of Moses being the very words of God, the Pharisees believed that the whole of the Hebrew scriptures that we 
call our, our Old Testament today was inspired by God. Um, they also believed in angels and demons. Whereas when we look through the Hebrew scriptures, angels and demons make very few appearances. In fact, demons, none. Um, angels, um, we can have this whole other conversation. I can hear some questions in my head as we have this conversation. The angels show up just a little bit um, in the book of Daniel and other places. But once we get to the New Testament, they're showing up a lot more. There's a lot more introduction of them. Jesus has already had encounters with them in the Gospel of Luke. And so they're they're showing up in, the, in Jesus' theology and in his reality, and the Pharisees also accepted angels and demons as existing. The Pharisees also believed in the resurrection, the, the full and ultimate resurrection at the judgment day and the resurrection of the dead um, for, for people who would pass away, that they would have that hope to come. That was not common to all, all Jews during Jesus' day. Not everyone believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. They were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees did. So when we look at the theology of the Pharisees, we actually find that Jesus and the Pharisees have much in common. Now, that should come as a surprise for many of us, because I think those of us who grew up in the church, grew up reading or hearing the Gospels or hearing various um, sermons from pulpits, we have heard regularly that Pharisee is really a bad word. We don't want to be a Pharisee. Um, people will say, don't be the Pharisees. And in fact, as you kind of look and see just Jesus and Pharisees, they are often painted as um, anti-Jesus, as evil, um, as terrible. There are books out for multiple books for Christians on how to not be a Pharisee, how to be more like Jesus, how to reject the Pharisees. And we don't really recognize how much Jesus actually had in common with Pharisees of his day. In fact, if we had to assign Jesus to a particular sect of Judaism or a movement of Judaism in his day, we would have to put him in the line and in the group with the Pharisees. He has most in common with them theologically, as well as really the Pharisees are bringing about the birth of rabbinic Judaism and the, the formal, the more formal rabbi-disciple model that is coming that Jesus seems to also be participating in with that high value and level for study. So all of that is there. Now, again, most of us equate the word Pharisee with hypocrite. The word hypocrite simply from the Greek word meaning, lat, meaning um, actor, um, referring to like sort of face masks, apropos of nothing, um, Merriam-Webster decided to um, tweet that definition this week um, following RBG's passing and some of the responses of other people um, to, <laughs> to some issues. So here we have like that definition of Pharisee equaling hypocrite and finding those things kind of together. But in fact, while yes, we do have passages in our Gospels, like in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus will give the woes, woe to Pharisees, those of you who are hypocrites and continue on, and that's kind of how we have that equation of things, um, we really find that Jesus has most in common with Pharisees. Um, there were, in Jesus' day and in the movement of Second Temple Judaism, just like today, there were a multiple um, a multiplicity of factors or approaches to how to live out your faith. So similar to how we might look at denominations today, those would be the different ways that we might want to hear or understand the different um, movements or, or groups or sects or factions of Judaism in Jesus' day. Also, when we listen into these debates, we're listening into a family debate. They love debate. 
the highly value of wrestling in the study of the text, what we might hear in our cultural setting as antagonism or pushing is more heard as like a deep love and concern and engagement with the text and engagement with that teacher. Um, the questioning and the wrestling for the sake of heaven is a high value within all of Judaism. And when we listen in, we hear contention. And I'm not saying that that's not there. For sure, there is there is contention. But I don't think we have to hear it with the same um, antagonism or malice that we might hear something like that in our own cultural experience. Um, so these debates are normal. They're not just normal, but they should be honored. Um, they're encouraged. They're pursued. Um, and we know that there are good Pharisees, just like there are good Baptists and good Catholics and good Protestants and all of that, um, that there were good people who aligned themselves with the Pharisee movement um, that Jesus found much in common with, and that those Pharisees were surrounding Jesus, interested in Jesus. Notice here that they're in the room, right? They want to have this conversation with Jesus. They want to watch. And let's, we're going to hear a little bit more of what they really might be asking in this moment. Um, as they are wrestling and debating all of these things, we want to remember that there were Pharisees that did follow Jesus. Nicodemus is one possibly Joseph of Arimathea, who gives the tomb for Jesus' body upon burial. Um, the Apostle Paul identifies as a Pharisee. He doesn't say, I was. He says, I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. So we have all of these sort of more positive views of Pharisees that we can actually see on display in our Gospels um, and in the rest of our New Testament. But because of our uh, cultural teaching on Pharisees, and because we've now equated that word with hypocrite, we tend to not notice uh, them showing up in the Gospels um, in positive lights. This is actually what I would like to call the theology of contempt, or more broadly, anti-Semitism. When we as Gentiles read our text, um, and read our Jesus story as Jesus sitting outside and apart from the Judaism of his day, we are reading our text with an anti-Semitism, an anti-Jewish bent, or a theology of contempt towards that movement. A theology of contempt might sound something like, look how terrible and hypocritical and you know law-driven and rules-driven Judaism of Jesus' day was. It was so bad. They had it so terrible. That's why Jesus had to come and show them the way and have this new movement. Um, and we set up Jesus as good only in comparison to his, the time of his day and the people of his day and the practices of his day, say, see how bad that was. And we try to bolster Jesus's um, benefit or goodness in that setting. Uh, I'd like to instead try to set Jesus back into his own cultural context. And I think that this matters, that when we, when we read Jesus and we have these pictures that sort of show up in our mind, that we don't see Jesus as sitting apart, dressing differently, speaking differently, or studying differently in all those other ways. Um, although, of course, there are some important distinctions. Um, all of this matters because we as the church historically, um, our ancestors have contributed to anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism movements um, in all of history, whether coming through Europe or here in America. We as Christians have contributed in horrific, horrific ways to the persecution of Jews over the last 1,500 years plus. 
Um, and that happens in large part because of how we read Jesus and how we teach on these things. So at Spark, we do a lot of work to try to understand how to read Jesus as a first century Torah observant kosher keeping Jew, because we believe that when we read Jesus well as his in, in that historical cultural context, that that will change how we treat our Jewish brothers and sisters today, and it would have um, been a significant benefit and corrected a lot of wrongs had the church done that historically. So ultimately, when we do also participate in anti-Semitism, we are not just um, needing to deal with something that is cruel and wrong towards our neighbor, we are also rejecting Jesus himself. Because Jesus is a first century Jew, comes in first century Jewish flesh. And as N.T. Wright has said on multiple occasions, that if we want to take Jesus seriously, we need to take that first century Jewish flesh seriously, because that is how God chose to send Jesus into this world. Okay, so how do we combat anti-Semitism in our own personal reading, well, we're going to repent, we're going to recognize our sin, we're going to recognize how we've contributed to pogroms and, and persecution in Europe and in America and exclusion from our own narrative and story. We're going to repent of that, we're going to become aware of our bias, we're going to start to study um, the entire Bible in its original historical and cultural context to the best of our ability. And we're going to be careful about our translation choices um, when we go through here. Okay, so all of those things are deeply important um, as we pay attention um, to how we read through our text. So sorry to give you all of that unpacking of history, and there's much more to talk about with the Pharisees, but I think that we owe them a great debt, um, and we, are, we should be deeply grateful for the ways in which they preserved texts and pursued the, the, Torah, the Torah observant lifestyle, um, because that is what Jesus is born into, and as we followers of Jesus believe that he was without sin, that he also observed all of the commandments and laws that God had brought forth, um, fulfilling them perfectly. Okay, so what is Jesus then saying to them when he says, no one puts a new patch on an old garment, and no one fills old wineskins with new wine? What is happening here? So let's remember what's been occurring in our weeks before with um, Sidney wonderfully preaching for us and Omer and Kevin and others. We are part of a story where Jesus has been showing up and in unlikely settings calling fishermen to come and be his disciples, um, showing up to Nazareth and saying, hey, guess what? This beautiful prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in your hearing, and everyone's like, woohoo, yay, we're so excited. And then he says, yeah, but not to you, but to Gentiles, and people get pretty upset about that message. Um, and we've heard over and over again, even with Omer talking last week and teaching about how the disabled are now being centered in this narrative. Um, people who used to be pushed and marginalized to the outside are being brought and centered inside. So all of that's been coming, and now even in this place, we have a story of a tax collector who has been called. And as you've noted throughout our readings, and as you can note in other Gospels, the, the words tax collectors and sinners are sort of almost always brought together in parallel in those moments. Tax collector, sinner. Tax collector, sinner. Right? Tax collectors do not have a great reputation. Um, and you'll recall that they did show up at 
John's baptism of the Jordan, at the Jordan River, and they also were asking to repent, to change their ways, and to find another way. And John says, don't collect more than you're required to, right? So all of these tax collectors are, we don't have a great reputation for them, and Jesus has just called Levi to come and be part of his disciples, to be part of his movement, one of his disciples, and now he's having a banquet, he's eating, oh my goodness, in Levi's house. I mean, what are we doing here? And so the Pharisees show up in this moment, and they're like, why do you guys eat and drink with sinners? What are you doing? Why are you eating and drinking with a tax collector? Why are you eating and drinking with a sinner? How is this working? And so Jesus gives them an answer. And the answer is, not only that I have come to call the sick, and not the righteous, which is actually a compliment to the Pharisee, right? Um, I'm not working on calling you. You've, you're fine. You've got it together, which I think would surprise any of us who've always thought the Pharisees are terrible and horrible and only hypocrites. Um, it's not to say that there aren't things to be addressed there, but don't we often save our harshest criticism for our own family members? But instead, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm really specifically here to call those who have been sick, marginalized, and pushed on the outside. So when he gives them this explanation, he's not just saying, let me tell you a parable that's kind of nice, and I'll tell you one about a garment, and I'm going to give you this double parable about a garment and a wineskin. He's trying to answer their question. Why haven't you chosen us? We're the best of the best. We're the Pharisees. We're the ones that study. We're the ones that pursue Torah. We do all of this good stuff, and you're picking fishermen and tax collectors and you're centering the disabled and you're centering the marginalized and you're letting women do I mean like all of these things this is just madness why aren't you calling us why are you calling them and Jesus's response is similar to I can't teach an old dog new tricks it's kind of hard to do that so he says in a very honoring way right like Anyone who tastes new wine, tastes first old wine and then tastes the new is going to say that the old is better. They're going to say that the way of the Pharisees, that your ways, your interpretations is better. But I'm doing something new, and I need new containers to do this new thing. And he doesn't tell them, you're outdated, you're terrible, nobody wants you. He's like, the old is better. That's, that's thought of by so many. But I need a new container to put this new wine into, this new teaching. And so I'm putting it in tax collectors and in sinners and in the disabled and in all of these other containers that are often pushed aside. That's where this new teaching is going to belong. And I think for many of us, we always hear that when something new is happening, we presume that that absolutely means that the old is bad. That is not what Jesus is saying here. I think he is saying that there is a place for both and that both are needed. And we don't have to disparage the old and only hold on to the new and only be grateful for the new, but we don't have to reject the new thing and only hold on to the old either. There's a place for both. Have you ever considered what it felt like for the disciples, for those followers of Jesus, for those people closest to this movement to hear this, to hear that they're not going to be 
like the people that maybe they've grown up and admired and followed after, or the people that they've longed to be as they sat on the outside looking in, but that Jesus is putting this new wine in them, these new containers, and calling forth a new good news, a new hope. I wonder what it might have felt like for even, let's say, Peter, for James, for John, for, for these young Jewish men and boys to hear that they are going to be the ones that are going to sort of carry forth this new teaching of this amazing rabbi who's commanding shriveled hands to be made whole and commanding paralyzed people to get up and walk and seeing the full salvation, as, as Omer taught last week, come to fruition in the lives of all of these people. What was it like for them to hear this? I think so many of us have found ourselves in these days with very complicated relationships with our own religious roots. If we grew up in the church or we grew up in evangelicalism or different movements, we might also find ourselves looking back towards our history or where we've grown up and trying to say, I don't, I don't want to be part of that anymore. I want to do something new or I, I just need to reject that entirely. A lot of us have used the, the framework of like a deconstruction of our faith in this process. And we've also maybe many of us recognized ourselves on the side of the Pharisees looking out at the new thing, maybe at various points in our own journey and thinking, I don't know if that should be the new thing. I don't know if that's the way that we should go. I, don't, I think I like this way here and I'm not sure that I'm ready to push forward. You know, at Spark, many of us have already found ourselves, um, you know, voted off that island. <laughs> We've already found ourselves sort of pushed out of that community that maybe we grew up in or our family values or whatever of our, our origin. And we've maybe tried to either deal with our anger or our frustration at what we've been taught as we push into the new, or maybe we've been dealing with a lot of hurt as we feel that we've been pushed out or rejected. These are hard moments. Um, in our church history, in our nation history, not Spark specifically, although yes, Spark too, we're in the middle of the pandemic and things are challenging and hard. But I want you to know that I think and I hope that we can be part of the new thing, that we can find ourselves, if we're the, the old dog that doesn't want to learn the new trick, that we can look to those coming up in our generations and communities, to the young people, um, to our college students, our high school students, even the youngest among us, and ask them and learn from them and lean in to the new thing Jesus is doing. And that we can also still reach and say to those of us who've been walking this journey with Jesus longer and who've seen more that we've seen, continue to teach us about the thing that God has done and what you see in wisdom that God is continuing to do. And I'm hopeful and prayerful that we might see ways in which these ways can come together in the person of Christ, and that we don't have to disdain the old, we don't have to reject everything that brought us to this moment, everything that we've come from, as we deal with frustrations or hypocrisy or whatever that we see. We can be grateful for all that made us and brought us to this point, even as we are deeply grateful for the new wine too. We've talked many times at Spark that this kind of means that we're going to live on the edge of the inside. And as Richard Rohr has taught us, that people on the edge of the inside are free 
from the central seductions of the inside, but we're also free to hear its core message in very new and creative ways. It doesn't mean that we're rejecting the old and accepting only the new. It means that we are trying to live on the margins where Jesus welcomes all and brings all and centers all into his ministry. Um, that we might continue to have ears that hear both the old wine and the new. So, in light of all of that good news, will you help join me now as we move to the table fellowship of Christ, where just as Christ does in the Gospels time and time again, all are welcome. All come and sit at this table, tax collectors, sinners, and Pharisees, and the religious, and those that have the gajillions of degree, decree, degrees, and all those that have so very little, all of us together invited to this table. So if you're able, you can grab your elements of communion now, your juice or your wine and your bread, and we'll commune together. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.